Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 23, 26 through 38. And this can be found on page 880 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us. Luke 23, 26 through 38. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to each of you. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you are with us this morning. Um, Whether you are just coming back after a long time of being away, and this is your first Sunday back, we're so glad that you're here today. Uh, Maybe this is just your first time at Christ Community uh, ever, and if that's the case, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. I know checking out a new church is always uh, a difficult thing, uh, especially during uh, all that's going on in our world right now. So thanks for being here with us. And we're really glad that you are. Well, before um, we look at this passage of Scripture that Carrie Lynn read for us, uh, you know, as the church, we are called to pray for our neighbors, for our world, um, for our country. And we just want to do that this morning, especially in light of the recent shootings in Georgia and Colorado. We just want to cry out together to the King of Peace to bring peace uh, to our violent world. So let me do that now on our behalf. King Jesus... We know you've promised this in Psalm 34 that you are near to the brokenhearted. And we lift up the families of these victims of these horrible injustices. May they sense your presence in a special way and may they know the comfort of your gospel promises to bring justice and healing, to put all things right in your coming kingdom. We pray also for your church in those cities in particular that you would empower them by your grace to be the hands and feet of Jesus, of compassion, of love and forgiveness and new life and gospel hope. May they mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep and be the peacemakers that Jesus commanded us to be. As we come to your word, we remember that you are no stranger, Jesus, to violence, to injustice, to loss, to pain, to grief. You, Jesus, are a man of sorrows and know better than we do how broken our world is. So we pray now that you would open our hearts to hear from you. 
Open our minds to be renewed by you and use our hands to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What are the two questions that every person is asking? The two questions that all of our asking, we've, we've talked about these questions before that we are asking these questions from the moment that we are born until the moment we die. From the first day of middle school and into middle age, we are asking two questions as human beings, and that is, am I safe and am I loved? Am I safe and am I loved? You know, and of course, our, our life experiences, the, the family that we grew up in, the friends that we had, the school that we went to, a trauma in our lives, hurt, abuse, neglect, all of these different factors that unfold in our lives affect how we answer that question for ourselves and, and have what our experience of that is like. Do we feel safe? Do we feel loved? Our life experiences shape that sense. But I, I think, and I would suspect this is probably true for many of you as well, that one of the biggest obstacles to us really experiencing, having this kind of felt experience, not just an intellectual knowledge, but really a felt experience of that God loves me, uh, much less other human beings, is that we just have this tendency just to, to muck things up. You know? That was muck with an M. Uh, just <laughs> so you know. Other initial contents could probably apply. Uh, but we have this tendency as human beings, right? To do that thing that we said we wouldn't do again. So, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm never going to do that again. I don't know what, what that is for you. Maybe it's actually something good that you're trying to put into your life. I'm going to get up early every morning and, and exercise, or I'm, on a work, I'm not going to run up the, the credit card anymore. I'm going to really stay on top of my finances. And then you oversleep your alarm again. The credit card statement comes again. Or maybe, and sometimes I think these are the ones that are more painful, it's, it's something that you are, you're trying to get out of your life. He said, I'm, I'm not going to lose patience with the kids again. I'm not going to yell at them anymore. I don't, don't want to do that. And then it happens again. It's crazy. They're crazy. You lose your temper again. Again, I, I don't know what it is for you, but we all have that thing. And I think the problem then with Jesus is that we have this sense that, yes, people who don't really know me could from a distance kind of, they could admire me, they could like me, but if someone were to really know all of the stuff that's buried here, that they couldn't really love me. That that, they, if they really knew that they would walk away. And, and here's the problem with Jesus then, because if Jesus is who Christians actually say that he is. That he's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a, uh, someone who lived a good life that we should try to emulate. But if he actually truly is God, who knows everything, 
who knows the deep, dark parts of me, then how, then how could he love me? How could he really love me? Sure, maybe he loves humanity in general, but, but, but not me. And, and yet, when we turn to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these accounts of Jesus' life, what we find is that the very people who are the most broken, the most messed up, the most trapped in patterns of sin are the ones who seem like they want to hang out with Jesus the most. So what do we make of that? How is that possible? How is it that Jesus wants that? What's his heart towards us? One of the best books that I read last year, I actually read it twice, uh, is called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. I said, I've, I've read it twice. I think uh, my wife, Rachel, I think she's probably on her third or fourth time through it. Um, we have it as, as a print copy, but also as an audiobook, and it's been one that we've both gone back to many times. Listen to how he starts this book. I, I love this. He says, this book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a, a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us but suspect we have deeply disappointed. And then he says, it is written, in other words, for normal Christians. In short, it is for sinners and sufferers. How does Jesus feel about them? How does Jesus feel about sinners and sufferers? What is his heart toward them? When Jesus encounters sinners and sufferers, people who have just messed up again and again, how does he think about them? Does he look at them with anger or disgust? disappointment. How does he look at them? Well, if there's one thing that you cannot miss from our passage this morning, it's that Jesus loves sinners. King Jesus loves sinners. His heart towards sinners and sufferers is deeply one of love. That, that is what you cannot miss from this text, that Jesus loves you. He loves you. And again, to have this distance between the life that you live and the life that you want to live, you don't even have to be a Christian to experience that, right? Like even if you're here and you came with a friend or, or you're just checking this out for the first time, you maybe said, I don't necessarily care that much about God's design. I'm a little skeptical of it, actually. But you still probably have the experience, right, of I have an ideal for my life that I don't live up to. How does Jesus think about the gap between what you want to do, who you want to be, and who you actually are. Luke 23 tells us that he thinks about that love, that gap with deep love and compassion. So if you haven't, uh, I invite you now to turn in one of the Pew Bibles, again, it's page 884, or pull it up on your phone. Turn to Luke 23. Watch this with me as we go through here. Because what we find in Luke 23 is the ultimate answer to those two questions, am I safe and am I loved? Am I loved? 
There is no greater answer to those questions than what we find here in Luke 23. Now, today in the church calendar is Palm Sunday. Uh, If you've noticed some kids have palm branches, that's why. Uh, But we actually covered the text of Palm Sunday a a number of weeks ago. Uh, You can go back and listen to the message on that. Uh, So today, I just need you to pretend that it's Good Friday as we look at this crucifixion account, okay? And in this account in Luke 23, we're going to pick it up at verse 26. What is unfolded is that Pilate, so we looked at last week, has three times declared that Jesus is innocent of any wrongdoing, that he's not designed anything to deserve death. And now he has decided to have Jesus executed to pacify the crowd. A riot is about to break out. Pilate's a pragmatist. He says, look, this guy is innocent, but there's going to be major problems here if we don't deal with this. We'll just give the crowd what they want. Now, the first step in someone being executed by crucifixion was not just taking them to the site and nailing them to a cross. So the, the first step was to actually brutally beat them, to whip them. It was called scourging. And you'd have a, a whip that had pieces of bone and glass tied into the end of it. And so this was a, a brutal, brutal beating. The flesh would be left in tatters. Oftentimes internal organs could be exposed in this process. And you read historical accounts of this flogging and it's, it's, it's hard to even read. And in fact, so many times people would be near death when they reached the crucifixion site simply from the scourging. Certainly they were dramatically weakened, which is what we see here must have been the case for Jesus after he experiences this this scourging. He's beginning to now carry the the cross beam of the cross to the execution site, but he can't go on. He stumbles. We pick this up here in verse 26. And as they led him, Jesus, away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, we have Simon's name here, which is interesting. We, we actually know the name of this person. Cyrene is an area of, of North Africa. This is an African man who's in Jerusalem who is now being pulled out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross. And it's significant. We get Simon's name actually in all uh, three of what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And people who study uh, ancient literature and eyewitness accounts point out this is really significant. So Jesus in the eyewitnesses is a book by Richard Bauckham, probably the definitive work on eyewitness accounts in, in ancient history and in the gospels. And he points out that the reason that you get these names included in accounts like this is because this is likely... Luke's source, that he has this little tidbit because he talked to Simon and has included Simon's name here to say, if you don't believe me, go check it out. This is a footnote. You can go talk to Simon and he can corroborate. He was there. That's why his name is included. And then next you have Jesus now walking along. Simon is carrying the cross and there's these crowds of people and these you know, men and women there and they're weeping, they're mourning for Jesus. And Jesus does something really odd. He looks to this crowd and he says, basically, weep for yourselves. Don't weep for me. Uh, this is verses 26 and 27, or 27, 28. Take a look at this. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
as I read this this week and thought about this, like, this seems kind of odd. This just seems like a strange way to respond. There's these people mourning, they're weeping for Jesus, and he kind of says, yeah, stop, like, don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And it almost sounds harsh or brash, strange. But you know, the more I reflected on this, the more I really came to see this as this is actually an expression of Jesus' love. Because Jesus is saying, look, you people of Jerusalem, who he's addressing in this crowd, you have rejected me. And I'm your, I'm your only hope. Look, what's about, what I'm going through right now, this suffering, this is for your salvation. This is going to lead to your rescue. Don't weep for me. This is going to be what saves you. So stop rejecting me. That's why I say, don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves if you continue to turn away from me, Jerusalem. This, this suffering that I experience is, is your only hope. This leads us to our first reflection this morning, and that is this, that King Jesus loves sinners enough to hate our sin. King Jesus loves sinners enough to hate our sin. Now, those words, that combination of words of love, sin, hate, they almost don't seem like they should all fit together. In fact, even, yeah, words like sin and hate, it's like, oof, they kind of can be a little bit fingernail on the chalkboard moment words to us. They certainly don't seem like they go together with love. But when you think about this, if you have real love, not just kind of a warm, sentimental feeling towards someone, but like true self-sacrificing love, love that is always about seeking out the good and the safety and the preservation and the flourishing of the one who's loved, then, then actually this starts to make sense. Because if you really love someone, you are going to hate anything that would hurt them, destroy them, right? It made me think about the other day, uh, one of our, our kids was getting out of our, our, our minivan. We're in the minivan stage as a family, three kids. Um, and these new minivans are great. I mean, they've got, it's like a spaceship in there. They have all these buttons and screens. And, um, but, you know, there's a button on the column of the door where you can push, push the button and then the door will automatically close. And so one of our kids is getting out of the van and she pushes the button to close the door. But the, the driver's door was also open and she wanted to climb into the driver's seat to get something out of there. And so, you know, she pushes the button. Her hand is here on the column. And that door is closing as she's holding on to that column to pull herself into the front seat. And I'm about 20 feet away from the van, and I happen to look up out of the corner of my eye. I see this happening. The door is closing. Her hand is there. And before I, my brain even has time to consciously think about what's happening, I just see this happening, and I immediately yell, Stop! Get away from the van! It was, kind of, it was harsh. But it wasn't because I didn't I wasn't angry. I wasn't mad. It was because I, because I loved her. I saw her hand was going to get crushed in the store. Friends, I, Jesus loves you enough to hate the thing that would destroy you, to hate the thing that would mangle you. He loves you enough to hate your sin. Now, you might say, that's, that's great. I'm glad Jesus loves me enough to hate the sin and that he knows about it even more than I do. Um, but that's not particularly encouraging to me. Uh, and that would be a little discouraging if, uh, 
We only thought, yeah, Jesus knows my sin. He hates it more than I do. That's, that's great, Bill. Thanks for the encouragement this morning. But there's more here, as you would imagine. There's more to this story. So if you go back and look now here at verse 32, the account continues and Luke tells us two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus, that's crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now again, our our Bibles just give us this one word, they crucified him. People in the ancient world, they were familiar with crucifixion. They didn't need it spelled out for them. But again, this is a a brutal, brutal process. So Jesus, the others who have already been beaten, they're bleeding, they're mangled, they're now stripped naked, spikes pounded through hands and feet. And the way that you die from crucifixion is is maybe, you know, you have some blood loss or whatever, but really the way you die from crucifixion is that as you're hung there on the cross, eventually uh, your body becomes so weak you can't support yourself and you can't get enough breath and your lungs can't get enough air and you die. You you suffocate. But this process could often take days of agony. It's it's hard to even describe it. I can't imagine being there witnessing, let let alone actually experiencing it. That kind of pain, suffering, torture. But it's not just that there's physical pain and torture happening here. There's also all the shame uh, and the mocking, right? We have the religious leaders here who are mocking. We have the soldiers who are gambling for his clothes and mocking Jesus as well. Verse 35, you hear the, the religious leaders as the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the Messiah of God, his chosen one. Yeah, prove it, Jesus. You've, you've made all these, these claims, you've done all these miracles, whatever, but now when it really counts, it seems like you're a fraud, a phony. And there's such great irony here, right? Because Jesus is saying, yeah, I, I, he could save himself, but I'm choosing to save you instead by staying here on the cross. It's incredible irony. And then you get in verse 34, one of the most, I think, stunning passages in all the Bible. As Jesus looks at the soldiers who are mocking him, who are gambling for his clothes, who have literally just been torturing him and have nailed him to a cross, who are literally killing him in this moment, and says, verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Friends, if Jesus can look at the very people who are murdering him, torturing him, in that moment and pray, Father, forgive them, and can pray for them and ask for their forgiveness, how much more will he do that for us, for you? Because here's the thing. King Jesus loves sinners enough to die for us. Yes, he, he loves us enough to hate our sin, but, but he also loves us enough to die for us. And I think in these moments of, especially when we come to that moment of having done that thing, whatever it is that, that we wish that we wouldn't do, we've tried so hard, we vowed we wouldn't do it again, and then we're there in that moment, I think sometimes we come to this moment and we think, well, Jesus, in those moments, he tolerates us. 
you know, he, he, we ask for forgiveness, and of course he forgives because, well, he's Jesus. He's, you know, he's got to forgive us. But that it's really in the moments of success and victory and triumph when we've got our lives together and we're, we're making progress and we're doing the right things and, and we're reading our Bibles and we're praying and the discipline and serving and all this thing, and we're doing really well, that those are the moments when Jesus' heart is really revealed for us. Of, wow, I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. This is my beloved son or daughter. I'm so well pleased with you. That it's the moments of success and triumph and victory that reveal Jesus' heart to us, reveal his heart for us. But friends, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that while we were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not, not, when, we, not when we cleaned up our act, not when we, we strung together a whole streak of Bible reading and praying. No, when, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's not your moments of victory and success that most reveal Jesus' heart for you, but rather your moments of failure, your moments of desperation and need that most reveal his heart for you. Uh, Listen to another quote from Gentle and Lowly here. It says, Meek, humble, gentle, Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. So let's take in for a moment. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus' arms are open wide. They are spread wide on the cross, offering embrace and forgiveness and healing and comfort and salvation, rescue for anyone who would come to him. Now again, you you might say, okay, that's great. Jesus is willing to forgive me. But you've probably had this experience, right? You've had a moment where you've had to go to someone and, and confess, you know, I've done this thing, I've hurt you in this way. Remember, they just didn't know that you've hurt them in this way, and you've just had to ask for forgiveness. And, and they say, you know, I forgive you. But there's still this sense of distance. You know, because forgiveness and reconciliation aren't, aren't the same thing, right? That you have to have some forgiveness in order for reconciliation to happen, but, but just because you have forgiveness doesn't immediately mean there's a reconciliation. And, and frankly, sometimes in human relationships, this side of new heavens and new earth, sometimes reconciliation is full reconciliation between humans, depending on what's occurred, isn't even possible. But you sense that there's this, this distance And I think then we import that into our relationship with Jesus and we wonder, is that how it is with Jesus? That when we come to him confessing, asking for forgiveness, he sort of says, fine, yeah, yeah, one more time, we'll do this. But I really need you to, I really need you to work harder. We've got to get this fixed. I really need you to work harder. You know, kind of arms crossed. And we sort of downcast, say, okay, I will. I'll try harder. 
And then we kind of go a few days. I don't know, maybe I'm just describing my own experience. And he's sort of like, well, you know, I'll try to, try to rack up a few days of, of good Bible reading and prayer. And you know, maybe I'll memorize a verse. And, um, and then I'll get to a place where maybe I can feel near to him again. Close to him again. But is that how it works? Is that how it works with Jesus? Because keep going here. We've got these two criminals, right? One is crucified on Jesus' right. One is on his left. And, and one of the criminals, Luke tells us, joins in with the soldiers and the religious leaders mocking. This guy is hard. He's, he's just hardened to the end. And, and he sees Jesus dying. And he's like, he starts mocking him too. Yeah, Jesus, come on. If you're so great, why don't you, why don't you save yourselves? And, and, and why don't you help me and my buddy here as well? Save us too. Just mocking him. But the other one? Somehow he notices that there's something different with Jesus. He, he recognizes that Jesus is not like them. You, you get this in verse 40. But the other one, the other criminal, rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus basically says to the guy, you want to hang out later? Because today you're going to be with me in paradise. Notice what he says. Jesus doesn't just say, today I won't send you to hell. He doesn't say, wow, you're really cutting it close. I mean, you're on a cross dying. I mean, wait to wait, wait till the last minute here. But I guess. Jesus wants to be with him. Today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to join me both now in, in paradise and in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Jesus wants to be with sinners. Isn't that what we've seen all throughout the Gospels? He can't get enough of them, and they can't get enough of him. Jesus, King Jesus, loves sinners, and he wants to be with them. He wants to be with them. King Jesus loves us enough to want to be close to us. And this is the whole point of the verses that we see next in verses 44 through 46. And what we see there is really key because there is this place called the temple, right? You have, uh, used to be the tabernacle, which is this tent that the Israelites carried around in the wilderness and they get into the land and Solomon builds a temple. Now we're on the second temple. We've, we've talked about this. The temple is the place where God's presence dwelled among his people. It was the sign, the symbol where God's presence dwelled. And inside the temple, there's this place called the holy place. And then that is divided further into the holy of holies, this most kind of hot spot of God's presence among his people. And once a year, a high priest goes into that space, the very holy of holies, makes an offering for the people's sin. But there's this deep sense that God's presence cannot be approached by a sinful people. There's a curtain, a thick dividing curtain that separates us. It's it's keeping us safe, From, from sort of the unmediated presence of God that would just evaporate sinful human beings. Okay, now you get to verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That, that dividing curtain is torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Friends, King Jesus loves sinners enough to be close to us. That's the whole point. As Jesus' body is torn on the cross, the the curtain is opened and a way is made forward for sinners like you and me to come into the presence of a holy God. That is the whole point, again, of this. That there is forgiveness, a way being made open. Because, friends... Again, I'm saying this to myself because sometimes the felt reality of this is so hard for us really to believe. But John 3.16, probably one of the most famous Bible verses in all all of Western culture. John 3.16 does not say God so tolerated the world that he sent his only son so that sinners wouldn't get zapped. That's not John 3.16. John 3.16, God so loved, God so loved the world that he sent his son so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Friend, Jesus does not tolerate sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Sinners, he, he does, you, don't, you don't suffer torture and death for people that you tolerate, that you sort of, you know, will deal with at arm's length. Jesus loves sinners, and he wants to be with them. He wants to be with them. And again, you might be saying, though, no, but, but, but what about it? What about that thing? What about that pattern? What about that habit? What about that, that habit I can't ever seem to start Doesn't Jesus get disappointed at some point? Doesn't his mercy run out at some point? Read one more passage to you from this book. What if you think you squandered Jesus' mercy? He writes this To you, I say, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's how he's described over and over again. God is rich in mercy. That's the whole point. Whether we have been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that in the regions of your deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means that the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug the hardest. It means that his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means that our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sin does not cause his love to take a hit, but our sin cause his love to surge forward all the more. Friends, King Jesus loves sinners. That's the good news of the gospel. King Jesus loves sinners. 
Again, you do not suffer and die and experience torture for people that you tolerate, but for people that you love. So let me conclude with this. We started by saying that there's two questions that each one of us is asking. Am I safe and am I loved? We've talked a lot about this reality that we are loved. King Jesus loves sinners. But what about that other question? Am I safe? Here's what I want to suggest at the end here. That you are only safe in the love of King Jesus. At least that's what the Apostle Paul seems to think when he writes at the end of Romans chapter 8. Because think about all the things that could threaten your safety. Financial ruin, disease, cancer, sickness, natural disaster, spiritual attack, depression, anxiety, any of it. Anything that could threaten your safety. Now listen to the words that Paul writes. Romans 8, starting verse 35. Who shall separate us from what? The tepid tolerance of Christ? No. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, King Jesus loves sinners. And the cross of Christ is the ultimate yes and amen to the question, am I safe and am I loved? Whenever you see a cross, remind yourself, this is the definitive answer to I am safe and I am loved in Jesus, now and forever. Let's pray. Father, even now as I proclaim these words, I know that there are parts of my heart that do not fully believe them. And I guess that is true for many of us here. That we can believe that Jesus would love the person sitting next to us, but that we still struggle, part of us deep down, to think that he loves me like this. And, and the only way that we can get that experience is to have your Holy Spirit pour afresh the love of God into our hearts. And so I just, I pray for that now. That as we come to take communion, that there would be sort of a supernatural refreshing. Or maybe for the first time, someone is sitting here and they have never felt that. Would your spirit come and bring new life to them? Would he come and pour afresh the love of Christ, the love of God into our hearts so that we would not just know this as a fact that we can recite, but it would be a shaping reality even now for us. The King Jesus loves sinners. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.